Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second. It's not a, it's not a Sunday. It's a Wednesday. Why is an episode of my favorite podcast that usually gets released on the Lord's Day gracing my podcast app in the middle of my week? What's going on here? Well, well, valued listener, I will tell you what's going on here. So a couple of weeks ago, Ethan and I were talking on the podcast about interviews and, and having guests on the podcast and how that kind of shifts the dynamic. Now, personally, the podcasts that I listen to are usually two hosts that have a good dynamic and they they joke and they chat about things that are going on and I like it. But sometimes they bring a guest on and it's not someone I'm familiar with, it's not someone that's particularly interesting, or it's someone that just doesn't mesh well with the host or the vibe of the show and it just kind of throws off the rhythm of the episode and I don't like it. And so we were worried, does having a guest on do that to our podcast? And so we kind of decided we would move away from having guests. But, you know, Ethan and I aren't the smartest people in the world. Our moms are. And so we were like, you know, maybe maybe we should still have some people on. But if we do, we'll have, we'll have them on a Wednesday. We'll do a bonus episode. The other reason why we did bonus episodes was because I scheduled an interview immediately after we had that podcast episode. I completely forgot we talked about it. And then I scheduled an interview. <laughs> because like I said, I'm not the smartest person in the world. And so we decided, okay, yes, if we have a guest, we'll release that episode on a Wednesday so we can still bring in fresh topics, interesting people that can add to, you know, our conversation, the things that we talk about on the crunch. And so the the organization that uh, this person, the Dr. Dr. Logan Gage, who's on the podcast today, he's with an organization called New Polity. He also works at Franciscan University of Steubenville. But this, uh, this, this New Polity organization is a, a think tank, a Catholic think tank, that's trying to solve the problem of where does the intellectual tradition of the West go now that we have a, a fully liberalized West and a fully liberalized world almost? Where does the intellectual tradition go now? I think that's a very important question. It's important not because the academics say it is and because people are writing books and papers on it. It's important because the intellectual tradition of the world we live in affects literally everything that we do. It affects the the roads that you're driving to work on right now. It affects the the way your gym is structured. Notice all those televisions in front of the treadmills? Yeah, that's liberalism. We're not going to talk about that right now, but it definitely is. So today on the podcast, Dr. Gage and I get into specifically science and how how our, our liberal view of science affects our worldview. 
We also talk a little bit about how the separation between science and religion relates to the separation between church and state, and we talk about the liberal idea of being, quote-unquote, intellectually neutral, and how that's a complete fallacy. Nobody is intellectually neutral. I think that these kinds of interviews stay true to the Crunch's mission to help our listeners have good, solid conversations about topics that matter in a fun and lighthearted way. Usually, Ethan and I tackle these topics on our own, in between making over-the-hedge references and jokes about our height, or our weight, respectively. But this podcast is going to be a little bit different. It's going to go a little deeper into an intellectual topic with someone who is has a PhD in this area, and I think that's, I think that's a very valuable thing. So, I hope you enjoy this episode of The Crunch, even though it's a little bit different. I hope you enjoy this bonus episode with Dr. Logan Gage from New Polity. Welcome to The Crunch, the only podcast that is nasty, brutish, and short. My name is Patrick. I am not joined today by my co-host Ethan. I am instead joined by Dr. Logan Gage, the philosophy chair at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Uh, and my little philosophy joke at the beginning should tune you into the theme of this podcast. Welcome to the Crunch, Dr. Gage. Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's exciting. I, I we wanted to go a little bit in a different direction than usual. Listeners of our show know that we we like to get a little goofy, a little rowdy but also a little uh, a little deep and a little intellectual. And so we're going to go more towards the intellectual side today. And uh, Ethan just didn't want to be a part of it. No, I'm just kidding. He had other obligations. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and the other, the other reason why, why Dr. Gage is here is not just because of his philosophic activities at Franciscan. It's because he's part of an organization called New Polity. That's correct, right? So I, I, I pronounced that That's right. That's right. And, uh, and I, could you just give us a little bit of a, a summary of what New Polity is? Yeah, so this is a, a, a new group in Steubenville, a think tank-like group that's committed to promoting Catholic social thought um, and and thinking Christianly about about politics. Okay, cool, sweet. So, what is the what is the eventual aim? I, I'm not I'm not exactly familiar with think tanks. So what? Yeah, people used to always ask me. I, I used to work for a think tank, and people. Uh, in Washington D.C., and people always ask me what in the world that is, and I and I, the the best answer I came up with is that it's like a it's like a university without the classes. Gotcha. So you have so you have scholars working on activities, writing books, doing events, but not um, not necessarily teaching students in a in a classroom setting. Okay, so so I'm assuming think tanks have like their purposes. They like they publish papers then, and they they tell they say things like we should be organizing our society like this or stuff like that that's right okay, that's cool. right so they're dedicated you and, and oftentimes you know unless it's a really really big think tank it's yeah that's right it's it's dedicated to a sort of one issue say okay. transportation policy or or education policy or or something like that oh wow so they get really specific and nerdy they can get really they can get really specific yeah gotcha. the think tanks were largely started in the 1950s by conservatives trying to go around the university system that they thought had come become too too liberal and oh, so yeah. they 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 sort of got private funding to do scholarship to, to write books and so were you part of the transportation think tank? 
Uh, yeah, my, my team, my th- the think tank I used to work for uh, focused on on transportation policy, um, economic policy, and um, and science policy, basically, which is how I got interested in philosophy of science. Basically. Okay, so it wasn't it was transportation policy, not just like so it was like how 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 big should bus wheels be, or no, it was more like <laughs> should we was, be using was... electricity or gas? Is that what we're yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. In particular, in particular, we were thinking about, you know, how do we, you know, the government thinks in like, you know, one year cycles, which is not great for planning ahead. That was right? very much not. Awesome. So, yeah. so we, we thought someone should be thinking about planning, especially, you know, yeah. many of us were in the north in the northwest of the country. And we were thinking, how do we plan for the I-5 corridor from Portland, you know, on up to to Vancouver? How do we think about transportation in, in the next 50 years versus, yeah. you know, one year budget cycles? Yeah, how how do we how do we reconcile the fact that more people are going to be taking that bus and destroying things along the way? <laughs> like, That's right. Yeah, making right. things very political. I I watched. I don't know if you, I watched this documentary. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's like which is the great, which is the best way to start a sentence. Um, I, I watched this one documentary. It's called The Pump, and it was about like it was about fuel and the history of moving from electric power to gas powered. It said that you used to be able to get across the country by taking trolleys. Is that true? Wow. Wow, I wouldn't. I would not have thought so. Although there were trolleys in almost every major city, for sure. Yeah, so you could thought. like. You <laughs> I don't could know like, how you go cross country on one. But. Well, I think I think it was a, I think it was a hybrid <laughs> system of trolleys yeah. and cross country trains. So okay. you could like you could yeah, like transfer sure. through train to the trolley to the yeah. train station. You could go through major cities, but now yeah. it's all it's all buses. I mean, on my commute home yeah. from work, I pass by these like long trains, uh, almost yeah. of these big coach buses that are like taking people in and out of Pittsburgh. And I'm right. just like I'm. They're all dirty and gross, and it's just the aesthetic is just so horrible. But the yeah. But then when you drive through like DC, they have the metro that rides along the highway, and you're like, this is such a good idea. Why don't we do this everywhere? Yeah, no, that's exactly right, and that's what a lot of us were thinking, especially in the Pacific Northwest. I was in Seattle, and we were we were thinking about you know what to, what to do out there, and so we were we were thinking about different public you know different public options uh-huh. uh, because the, you know the freeway was just getting insane. Yeah. So, so how, how does someone with a philosophy background, how did that connect with, with, uh, with like public policy? I, for, for some reason that just isn't something that is connected in my mind. Although now that I say that it sounds like it's pretty connected. Yeah. Although I was always interested in, in public policy, but, um, I, I got particularly in this thing tank, I got interested, I got interested in issues of, of, of science and design and this, this thing tank worked on everything for, again, from public transportation to sort of free market technology policy to um, to science education issues, especially. So I did a lot of liaison work on Capitol Hill, trying to convince people, um, you know, that we ought to think more carefully about how we teach science in this country and not just as a, as a list of sort of dogmas, but rather as um, as a sort of teach the controversy on major issues. So when it comes to global warming, teach the pros and the cons, say why one camp thinks this, another camp thinks this, and get students excited about controversy instead of thinking that science is just, I always found science boring. Because I thought yeah. it was just a bunch of settled stuff, and unless you were a super genius like Einstein, you couldn't make any contributions. And so I got into it into it that way. And I'm particularly interested in evolutionary issues. Uh-huh. And so I thought, listen, we've got to start teaching science in a in a sort of exciting way where we teach the controversies, why people are on both sides of at least at least major issues. And um, and I think it'd be better for science education. I think it'd be better for for our students who become more engaged. And it also would be a little more honest, right? Mm-hmm. Where we just instead of saying everything's settled, there are no disputes. Scientists never disagree with one another. I, I just find that crazy. It's all happy, obvi- and you know, it's obviously not true. Yeah, is the thing about it, it's it's it sounds it sounds ironically the the way that you know it sounds like the the environment scientifically is or 
I guess the perception is the same way that my students view learning religion class. You know, they come yep. in, they're like, here's a bunch of things that I have to learn about. And it's all these like decided things. But the only difference is one is, you know, lorded above one is like elevated, but we're definitely going to go into more about like the culture, the cultural perception of science. Cause you have, you have a, uh, you have a course on new polities website right now. That's about science as our religion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a little provocatively titled, but it's a, it's sort of that helps, a Christian, you know, for a Christian <laughs> that's right. A Christian view of philosophy of science, trying to help, help Christians think more, more seriously about how to engage with science in a healthy way without either on the one hand, just turning off our brains and saying, whatever the scientists say today, even if it's not what they said yesterday, it's all, you know, fine. Uh, not turning off our brains, but at the same time, not becoming cranks, you know, who yeah. are on the deep recesses of the internet and don't believe anything or trust anyone. Um, it's, it's actually hard. It's surprisingly hard to walk that line, but I'm trying to convince everyone to do that. And yeah, so this, it's, it's, it's basically a 15 series sort of lecture, 15 part lecture series. That's um, fairly short lectures. Um, that's basically free on the new polity website until October 15th. Okay, good. Well, this is coming out before then, so people will be able to get to get that. Now, I, to clarify, once they get it, does it expire on the 15th? I think the end, I think it's free until the 15th, uh, and I think it's up there until then. And then after that, it's, you know, it's a sort of pay-for type. Pay-for type, yeah. There's but also I, clips, on, clips on YouTube people can search from that are clips from the from the episodes and so forth, too. Yeah, so that's that's newpolity.com. You'll find it. Um, We'll put that in the description, but yeah, I, I, I watched, I watched a couple of the introductory videos and, and went a little deeper into the actual lecture. I tried to get like a good broad at, look at it so we could figure out what we were going to talk about today. Uh, because I, I, I've, I've, I was actually talking to my wife about this a couple of days ago and I, I saw the first title of the first, the title of the first installment of the series is, um, the gal it's about the galileo controversy okay yeah and this is something that's very confusing to me because you may understand the galileo controversy and you're like well i know exactly what that refers to but i just have this kind of in the back of my head knowledge of i know somewhere something happened with galileo for instance recently <laughs> right. i learned that galileo the galileo thing happened in the 1600s i thought it happened in like the 1100s right like the med- medieval there's like bubonic plague and like right you know like the the turks are invading um, everybody wore brown they were very sad yeah every, yeah yeah and and no one had shoes there were just no yes. shoes and just shoes and catholicism and no shoes and catholicism and and i i i was i was we were hiking and i was like hold on and she was like what and thinking that i saw something dangerous in the distance and i was like did galileo come up with heliocentrism i was just trying to remember if i if, if that was i was like i was like because when did Galileo exist? And the reason the reason why I asked this was because um, I was reading Dante's Inferno, and the Dante's universe is very you know heliocentric in a sense. And I was like, when when what? So anyway, could you clarify the the scientific origins of the Galileo controversy so that like I can get sure. a better idea of what it looks like? Sure. Good. Well, well, that's. I mean, you're starting in an interesting place because Galileo is not the first, you know, person to promote heliocentrism. Obviously, you know, uh, Nicholas Copernicus was a century, you know, in, uh, uh, you know, almost a century before him. Um, I mean, writing largely in the 1500s, whereas Galileo's, you know, major works are in the are in the 1600s, and so. Um, you know, which is really interesting because Galileo runs afoul of the, of of the church and has this big controversy, but Copernicus didn't. Yeah. Right. So, and and we should kind of ask why. And I mean, the standard narrative for Galileo is something like this, right? Um, it's that the you know the church authorities found his ideas threatening, 
and they persecuted him for it. Yeah. And and the church the church was wedded to this false cosmology dictated by the the Bible and a bunch of ancient authority. And so Gallo comes along. He argues rationally with evidence for the for Copernicus's view for mm-hmm. the Copernican heliocentric view of the world. Uh, and he had all this scientific evidence, and then they just piled on. And him they're and, like, "No, we we want to just sell indulgences. We don't care about science." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and he was imprisoned in dungeons and forced into silence, and his works were banned, and he was even tortured, according to Voltaire and so forth. And um, all just for speaking truth to power is sort of the, the narrative. Um, and and that I, I guess partly what I want to do is back up and just say. That narrative is so powerful in our consciousness. This is why I call it the Galileo complex. Actually, a friend of mine put it to me years ago. He said, "He said, Logan, you know, we Catholics have a Galileo complex. And I thought, that's exactly right. <laughs> so afraid to touch anything scientific or to disagree with any public, you know, scientific ideas um, or, or even modify them or be hesitant because we don't want to be branded as, you know, know nothing Catholic science deniers. Yeah. And these images from Galileo and several other episodes in the history of science they do that to us. I think they're. They, I think they're meant. I think they're actually created to do that. But they're meant to sort of put us, box us in. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the irony of this whole discussion is that like every, all parties in the Galileo affair are basic. Almost all parties are, are Christians, except for some secular colleagues of his that are kind of persecuting him. Um, and and historians point out a, a number of interesting things. Right, that. Not only, of course, is, is Galileo himself a Christian, but that his chief rivals were like these Aristotelian professors of natural philosophy. There's like other scientists, yeah. in other words. So 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 in other words, the way this story gets told to us is not about a conflict within science and about how nasty academics and especially scientists are to each other when they disagree. It's all about, you know, the church persecuting him. But basically, the, the Aristotelian professors of natural philosophy, they um, they wielded the power of the Inquisition against Galileo and we're we're sort of behind the scenes and um and, and so and there's a bunch of other complications to the whole the total narrative the, the the narrative here right that that um the the affair comes right in the wake of the reformation mm-hmm. which which means that um you know the church had just been accused of not taking the bible seriously enough and relying on tradition too much and um and then Galileo comes along and 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 you know, the Pope and, and others are worried about too quickly abandoning a plain reading of Scripture where there are a couple of Scripture passages that you could easily take to support a geocentric model. And so they were worried about that. And then on top of it, you have these weird personalities. Galileo is kind of a jerk. If you've ever read him, you would not like him. Um, he's he's hardly the model of dispassionate science. He thinks yeah. everyone that disagrees with him is an idiot. And he's, you know, he's like way over the top. And then Pope Urban Eighth is is kind of, I don't know. He's sort of self-centered. He's got an ego. He wants Galileo to include all his thoughts in one of his books. And mm-hmm. and anyway, you know, the, the the gist of it in the end is that Galileo's uh, most famous work, the, the dialogue concerning two chief world systems, Galileo takes the opportunity to to make the Pope look like an idiot and put put all of the Pope's ideas into the mouth of an idiot, a guy named Simplicio, right, the foolish philosopher. Oh, jeez. And the and he gets mad. You know, the Pope obviously gets mad and asks for a, a, a commission to look into the into the book but he gets really really gets in trouble for not for you know having ideas but rather for going back on his word to sort of teach his view as the absolute truth of things um and and promote it when it really hadn't been settled between you know these competing institutions what the overall best view was if that makes sense 
And so the, the, the obviously historical complexity of this Galileo affair you mentioned was popularized by Voltaire, who, if I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, is an Enlightenment, French Enlightenment philosopher. Exactly, okay. exactly. A very anti-church, anti-clerical uh, sort of fellow. And you know, the best part of the story that I didn't even mention is that is that historians of science now look back on it and they don't think that the ev- the scientific evidence at the time was very was any much any more in favor of heliocentrism over geocentrism that it could all be lined up and maybe explained even a little better with the heliocentric model. I mean, with the with the geocentric model. Oh, so 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 really, you know, people look back and say, well, why did the church oppose, you know, hard science? Well, it wasn't hard science. Yeah, and it it really, I mean, in my mind, it's just like if I was just a, a, a dude wearing a toga chilling in ancient <laughs> Greece, I'd look up and I'd be like, yeah, that thing is moving and I'm not. According to where I'm standing, it looks like that thing moves. Right. Um, that's sure what it looks like. And it's it, it's like really cool, but that's not. In fact, that we're moving and we're moving in another way and then we're moving in like a third way. And it's just, right. it's really, that's really intense. But I can understand yeah. why people thought the way they thought. I mean, anyway, so, so moving well, and forward. It was, it- yeah, well, and it was hundreds of years where people worked out the physics of this. How could it be the case? There was this big debate, and it was all in the medieval, in the late medieval period. There was this cool debate about people trying to figure out, well, how could there be, you know, uh, the kind of motion? How could there be motion of the Earth here, and yet we wouldn't feel it? And yet, when you throw a ball up, it, you know, it comes straight back down to you rather than you moving past it. I mean, they had to work that out. That took that took yeah. a few hundred years, and 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 so for us to look back with sort of spite that they didn't know anything and they were all stupid i mean it's just it, it, it's ridiculous it's ridiculous of us it's good yes it's, it's incredibly dishonest and it's very it's very uh it's, it's just it's just the general modernist idea of history is that everybody before yeah. us was really stupid and a fourth writer now is smarter than saint thomas aquinas because he knows what gravity is yeah. you know or just, yeah exactly yeah. yeah and c.s lewis called this chronological snobbery right ah, that, okay. that, yeah, there, that we're, we're we're better just because we came later and that's just not that's not true in fact we're standing on their shoulders yeah i i mean i you can just you can just look at my little brother to know that's not the case all right uh so <laughs> <laughs> So I, we we have that we have this this Galileo controversy. And we don't really need to go into it because I think I think our our listeners have a, a general idea of these these myths that exist. Like there's the we understand at least there's some kind of myth of the of Galileo. There's a myth of the Crusades. There's a myth of the Inquisition that makes it very simp overly simplistic that the Church was the bad boy and the yep. science was good and was trying to fight the good fight. But this this attitude you call it the Galileo complex, it obviously bleeds through in other ways. So what's like a comparable uh, complex that we have with another area in science? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm particularly interested in evolutionary, mm-hmm. you know, issues. And, and so I think that most of us turn off our brains there and we just sort of say, well, whatever the scientists say, it'll all be fine. And but there are people that are really promoting very materialist views of the human person and of, and of evolution. And, and the idea that we shouldn't at least like think about them and how are they or how aren't they compatible? I think we just want to turn off our brains and just say, whatever science eventually says well you know but in the meantime it could say a bunch of false things and we ought to be we got to be careful and, and think through it so i think i think that um sort of how, you know i don't think we need to be skeptical or, or or have our sort of antennae up um on every little scientific issue right like yeah. like what's i don't know um what's the structure of this plant or something well we can just go observe that but when we're talking about highly theoretical things that bear on god's existence on the importance of humanity on whether there's any plan or purpose to the universe. Well, that's the kind of stuff where I'd say we got to like be a little more careful and can't just, you know, turn it off. 
Yeah, it, se- it seems as though it seems as though science, at least at least scientifically minded Christians, are very ready to throw off the the tradition and 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 the the pre the pre, coming in with like a pre conception of things right saying like no well if because this theory is possibly true because this evolutionary theory is possibly true then we should probably deny the truths that we held beforehand right and and that that just seems dangerous if you if you continuously do that every time yeah absolutely and 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 listen there may be a way to work all these things out and that's that's fine and so maybe we just have a little bit of hesitancy a little caution but we don't dive in wholesale on whatever the current I mean, we all know these theories are being promoted by like the greatest atheists of our age, right? I mean, it's yeah. like Richard Dawkins and all these guys. So, so that doesn't mean that we can hold a theory that's really close to theirs, but importantly different in other ways that maybe allows for divine action and so forth. But but the idea that we just say, well, whatever Richard Dawkins says, it has to be compatible with Christianity and with because he's super smart. Yeah, that's yeah, right. He, exactly, he's so smart. He's so, he's that's so, crazy. That's yeah. crazy. I mean, we we can't we can't turn off our our minds like that. We got to be we got to be wise, wise as serpents. So let's go deeper. Let's go deeper into evolution then. I mean, I, yeah. I, I don't think, uh, I think growing up, I was definitely in this mindset of like, well, okay, evolution is just kind of for granted. And the only other option is creationism, which just seems a little, I mean, right. you can, you can, you can debunk the whole seven days thing with that, you know, well, the sun didn't exist until day three. So right. how, how can that be literal? You, it's, it seems like the thing we're, we're, we're divided between either a completely literal interpretation of Genesis or completely Dawkins style evolution. And so right. where where do we, where can Christians go into evolutionary theory to kind of be a way that's scientifically honest and theologically consistent? No, that's a really that's a really good question. I mean, I do think that we're often false we're often forced into uh, you know, the camp that where we just say whatever science says is fine precisely because we view those as the options. I think you're exactly right. Um, I certainly think that young earth creationism is is mistaken. I do, although actually, I mean, interestingly enough, some of those guys have leveled some interesting criticisms of evolutionary theory. But in terms of their own positive theory, I don't think there's any biblical reason, certainly no traditional reason that we absolutely that we would have to maintain something like that. But there's a lot of people in in the middle, and I think that these people get kind of shouted down, or else they get lumped in with the creationists because they're you know many of them are Christians, right? So for instance, the intelligent design guys, I mean, those guys are really smart and sharp, and they get dismissed as these like backwoods, you know. Um, idiotic, you know, creationists when really these guys hold, you know, several of these guys hold double PhDs from like Ivy League institutions and Cambridge and Chicago and so forth. Um, These guys are not, you know, a bunch of a bunch of morons. And if you discredit them, then you need to discredit all the other people that disagree with them that, you know, base their own credibility on these Ivy League institutions. So, I mean, yeah, no, that's that's right. And but they've I think that's been the strategy that was lumped them in with the with the young earth creationists and then dismiss them when when in fact these guys are making rather serious arguments and it, and it could help change our view of how of how things developed over time. I mean, fundamentally, what they're arguing is that that we won't go by divine revelation or something that there's like a purpose or plan or that there's teleology in the world, but that we can really see it in biology, that we can see it in the world and physics, that we can see it in the world itself, mm-hmm. and that's why actually they're, they're so they're viewed as so dangerous, right? Because they're crossing this strict boundary we have between the, the the natural and the supernatural that we want to keep really, really separate. And they're saying that no nature itself gives positive signs of designs, not just maybe some private faith that Dawkins doesn't really care if you hold deep down in your heart. Right. And that, that's the key here. And this is the overlap with political the fight over political liberalism that New Polity, I think, is is a part of is that we make a very strong natural supernatural distinction as though as though these realms don't overlap. We make a really strong um, 
private-public distinction and and sort of science and non-science. And we sort of we, we sort of say um, that if you're talking about God in any way or even leaving room for divine action within science, well, you're like a creationist and a Bible thumper and a backwoods snake handler, and <laughs> you know um, you're 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 crazy. And I just think, man, there's why would we as Christians go along with that? Why can't we say, listen, we believe in God and and it sure looks like nature is really purposive, unless you have just overwhelming evidence that, for instance, the evolutionary process is non-purposive and is really just a bunch of yeah. series of blind accidents. Well, then we're not going to go along with that. We, you know, or, or I mean, show me the evidence, basically, and we can, and then we can have a discussion about, well, really, have they really ruled out, you know, divine action and so forth? I mean, that's what they say. You know, Dawkins uh, at at Oxford, Jerry Coyne at Chicago, th- these guys all say that, and and we can't, we got to quit pretending like. Um, like, like there. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of The Crunch. Sorry to interrupt what I'm sure is a stimulating intellectual conversation, but I wanted to pause the episode real quick to let you hear from some of our sponsors. We will be back right after this. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. There's no, we got to quit pretending like scientists aren't making claims that really bear on God, on the faith and on, and on the importance of humanity. I mean, they definitely are. And we, I think the popular response from a lot of Catholic apologists is, well, these are just totally separate things. Nothing science ever says could ever challenge any theological ideas that we have. I think that's obviously not true. And I think we got to stop saying it. I think, I think the, that comes from a place of we want we want to show that we're both intellectual, scientifically honest, and theologically consistent. It, it's just, we want we want to at least appear this way. But what ends up happening is you say, well, well, science science could never make a claim that challenges it, and then we take scientific claims and say, well, oh, that that can be true, and God can also exist. But we have to say, well, no, that claim specifically would say God doesn't exist, and so we can't yeah. hold that. I don't think that totally. that is I don't I don't think that is something that we should continue saying. Um, right. So, and also as a, as a defensive strategy, I think this is usually a defensive strategy on Catholic intellectuals part, right? Because yeah. it's like these guys are kind of, what we do is we build a wall, like a strict wall of separation, but not between church and state, but between science and religion. And then we say, they could never make any claims on our territory. And it's like, well, first of all, they've ignored the wall. Like they're, they're making, they don't, they're making, they don't care. <laughs> no, they don't care because, because they don't believe in that. They're, they're happy for you to make it though. So that Christians don't really get involved in science yeah. and think about it and try to work try to work out a sort of synthesis because we're trying we're over here trying to make clones and make sex dolls and you guys keep telling us that's wrong so you stay over there sorry that was yeah, a and, crude but <laughs> yeah and, and elon musk with his you know the new pig army he's going to create with yeah his, exactly. his neural link thing um they but but it's a defensive strategy and it's a mis- i think it's a fundamental mistake from catholic intellectuals that, that mm. they they are saying um 
if we just build this wall, then then science can't encroach on our theological territory. And the first thing is, as we said, is that they're not the other side's not respecting the truth. Uh, they've even heard about it. Um, <laughs> the, the message and, was lost. And, yeah, and 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 by doing that, though, you you end up saying that then there can't be any positive evidence within nature. So it becomes very fideistic that we believe that God has a plan, but we don't really like see any plan or purpose in nature and so forth. Yeah. It becomes a very fideistic um, view. And I don't think we should see that, that territory at all. Or then I think something that uh, worries me about the way that Catholics approach evolution is it becomes theistic in the sense that, you know, they're, they're, even if there is a God, he kind of just set, the watchmaker thing where he just set evolution in motion and just let it go on its own and worked the right. world out so that I, th- I think that's also a dangerous position. Yeah. To yeah. Well, the thing I've noticed about, about a lot of theistic evolution is that it doesn't really have God doing anything within the evolutionary process. Yeah. It really, it really, the theistic part is not describing their evolutionary theory, which is completely secular. The theistic part is describing their own beliefs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so they're theists who believe in evolution, but it's very rare that they're really trying to combine these in any serious way or trying yeah. to think that, true i'm not saying that's going to be easy that's going to be a difficult generations long process figuring out how does god relate to the things we're seeing in the fossil record and to it's what we know about about you know biological processes but i certainly just don't want us to to jump to the conclusion that what these guys are i mean what these guys are really saying is that god was not involved in any way in the production of any organism on earth (laughs) that's their Uh theory is that it's a series of accidents of accidental genetic mutations meaning meaning that for for non-purposive reasons, there were changes in the genetic code, and that over time those built awesome new designed-looking organisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that really is their theory. And I think we've got to we've got to say, well, is the evidence for that really very good? Because that comes with a lot of metaphysical baggage. Is the evidence for that really very great? And and it, and it or and if so, how do we work through that as Christians? I mean, that's a conversation we should really have rather than just saying, well, whatever they find is fine. You know? Yeah, and I, I think I think the. Uh... The evolutionist needs to be able to account for the soul somehow, and I think I think that the arguments for the the existence of a soul, human soul, are are incredibly strong, and I I just find it I, I find it very um very absurd to imply that something could evolve a soul, you know, something right. could that without a soul could then give birth to something with a soul. That just seems strange to me. Yeah, that seems yeah no to- no totally. That's just my own my own philosophical <laughs> <laughs> position that I'm holding here, and someone who's definitely going to agree with me. So that's good. Um, so yeah, moving moving forward, then like this is all fine, but most of us aren't scientists, right? In the in in the philosophical sense of the word, or even in the in the secular sense of the word science. But we all live as as we are want to say, we all live in a society. And so how how does this affect of of you you mentioned the separation between uh, science and religion is analogous to the separation between church and state. And one of your videos was entitled Science and the State. How, how do you see those two things relating? Well, there's a long history of them relating where the early modern scientific theorists really wanted to use state power to bolster up a new army of scientists that then could have a kind of authority structure within society 
and and particularly it would be independent of the church because the church obviously you know funded science throughout its history and was the traditional supporter of everything good in Europe whether it was art or science or anything mm-hmm. else and they wanted to particularly pull that away so that there was no longer any connection between the two things and in a way the science the scientific enterprise gets set up as almost a parallel authority in society to kind of replace the unity that was once given by the church and Christendom mm-hmm. now our project is sort of a technocratic scientific economic project that, I mean if you think what holds America together today some sort of technocratic scientific economic you know project yeah. where, where what we all care about is like the stock market and and that's about that's about it you know we disagree on like everything else and so we've tried to in a weird way science has grown up and this is you know I'm, I'm joking a bit when I say that it's a religion I don't mean that it, it, it's it's exactly a, a religion but but in a weird way, it's taken over the institutional authority and the binding power, mm-hmm. the unity of society that holds the Westerners together. I mean, people get excited about the new iPhone coming out, you know, they in a way that they don't about anything that is overtly religious, right? Yeah. So, so it plays a certain role in our in our society. And and the other the other parallel that I see here is that um, in both the political the sort of you know church-state separation and, and the analogous sort of science-religion separation, there's there's a sort of, there's two things going on. There's there's a sort of myth of neutrality in the sort of liberal state. Mm-hmm. as the, Because the liberal state, I mean, what does it say? It basically says, well, listen, we, we can all just agree to disagree about religion. It's not a big deal, which inherently sort of says, sets itself up as, as non-religious, right? Yeah. Um, when really, obviously, when push comes to shove, it's got to take a position on stuff. And so it's it's not like secularism is not a neutral you know, way to view the world. Yeah. And 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 in the same way, there's a, a sort of there's an analogous uh, myth of the neutrality of science. That science is just like this independently verified, neutral dudes in white lab coats telling us how it is with and they're dispassionate with no emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that sort of myth of neutrality in both. And then in both of them, there's a very strict sort of public private dichotomy right okay. where where in the political realm think about what happens we say we all agree not to make religion that central so that we can kind of get along politically and not kill each other and and um and and religion becomes increasingly privatized i mean religion's okay so long as you don't like bring it really yeah. in to bear on politics as long right? as long as you're not like in everybody's face with it you know yeah as long as you yeah. don't like you know use it to guide public policy or like in other words unless you do anything that matters yeah right so so religion's fine unless you do something that matters right um and the same thing happens in science right where it's like oh yeah okay okay francis collins the head of the nih he's he's technically religious no one cares because he's not bringing his faith really in to challenge anybody mm-hmm. or anything and and the same thing happens here that there's this that that we've made a strict sort of religion science dichotomy where if you even mention God or try to bring him into your theorizing or, or try to make what you're doing compatible with divine action, all of a sudden you're just, you're just the weight of authority will come down on you. You are automatically biased. Yeah. You're automatically like a backwoods fundamentalist. It's weird. It doesn't matter if you went to Cambridge, you know, or Oxford, you're a backwoods fundamentalist because you want to do something with God. So in other words, it's fine. It's all, but that forces, so the common thing here that I have a lot in common with the, the folks at New Polity is that we both see this sort of myth of liberal secular neutrality, mm-hmm. which is really a myth, right? They're taking positions on things. And then also this like this increasing privatization of religion, which is very, very Protestant in a way, right? Yeah. Um, but it's an increasing privatization where we're forced more and more not to bring uh, what we know about God 
into the political realm, not to bring what we know about God into science as though it was unimportant or only a little incidental, as though we could just add it on to whatever else we're doing. Yeah, and and just to that point, you mentioned we want we want to uh, we want to make sure we take religion out of politics so that we you know don't don't we all get along and don't kill each other. And I just think that, I mean, a couple of days ago we saw how well that goes. <laughs> you know, even when there's no right? religion involved, nobody gets along for more than no. it's laughable that the I, I I had to watch we 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 talked about the debate in our episode a couple of days ago, so I'm not going to go into it too long. But we we watched it and. I watched like little bits of it and I like the when they were setting up the rules they were like okay so the debate's going to be in 15 minute segments and you each have 2 minutes to say your thing. They couldn't even go 2 minutes yeah. without just going at each other and it's like it 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 it, it signifies something and then even even still right like historically we think oh religion is what causes a majority of wars. But post secularization of the west, you have the Franco-Prussian War, you have World War 1, World War 2, Vietnam, Korea, and then the endless wars that we have right now. It, taking religion out of the West did not end war like we thought it was going to. No, obviously and not. This is another myth that I was railing on a couple of weeks ago that we we just seem to believe that religion causes it necessarily causes animosity when in reality it's mis mishandling of political power. Right. Right. No, I think that that's right. And, you know, the whole, the whole new atheist publishing craze, that was really how it got a kind of hold on society. Right. After 9-11, you had Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and, and Hitchens and those guys. And and they got their sort of hooks in. Though I mean, it wasn't like somebody discovered some great new arguments for atheism. I mean, they don't have a single new argument in any yeah. of those books. Rather, it was it was capitalizing on the religious violence, on the fact that there had been, you know, these these Islamic terrorists that had, that had you know, um, taken down the, the World Trade Center and so forth. And they they used that as. In other words, that background mythology, like this false history really matters because then they leverage that mythology to give us a perspective on what just happened on 9-11. And then we're all supposed to be atheists now. So leveraging it intellectually uh, against us. So so the mythology really, really matters. Yeah, which is, first of all, just like really horrible to use such a thing as, you know, essentially a personal vendetta. I mean, it's having having watched and, and, and read some of these these new atheists, it's it is really nothing more than who they are as people. Like you don't, you want to avoid ad hominem attacks, but it, there's a deep, there's a deep character flaw in some new atheists that just you just can't get away from. I mean, I knew some in high school, and they're just very vicious. And it's there are some Christians who are extremely vicious, right? But then it's like you have to you have to step back and say, is this inherent to the worldview itself? Does this worldview inherently make people more vicious? And I think there's something to say that there there is something that makes it more vicious. Um, yeah, sorry, what were you gonna say? No, I was just going to say that that um, that's I, th- I think that's I think that's basically right. I think though that like religious violence or religious sort of even just viciousness, like you were saying, that somehow counts against religion. But then if it's in a secular person, remember this is the myth of, of neutrality. Well, this is it doesn't yeah. count against secularism. It doesn't count against atheism. It's just like well, it was like a personal flaw rather than caused by the religion because mm-hmm. they're supposed to be neutral. Otherwise, they don't have a religion. But of course, they have all kinds of metaphysical commitments about whether God exists, whether morality exists. They have all kinds of metaphysical you know, sort of commitments. And, and, you know, it ha- we have to be consistent here. Either it counts against, you know, both or neither. And I think the, I'm so glad you brought up the, the intellectual vacuum or the intellectual, you know, uh, uh, what was it? Disinterestedness. All these synonyms work. Uh, I was reading, I was reading C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, and he talks about this exact thing, but in the moral world, he talks about a moral vacuum. We, we have this idea that, 
uh, was this the abolition of, nope, it was on ethics, never mind. And so it was on ethics and he was talking about how we, he doesn't like the question, is a Christian ethic going to save the world or destroy the world? And he's like, that's a silly question because that's implying that we're outside of ethics right now and we got to go pick one and then, then we're going to commit to it. And I think, I think we, this is this, this intellectual vacuum that we exist in. Where do you think the, because you've, you've said that we're in it right now. Where do you think we've inherited this idea that we're outside of a bunch of different uh, worldviews, like uh, like Jack Skellington in, in A Nightmare Before Christmas? You know, we can just jump into <laughs> any of the trees, you know? Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I do think that that I mean, not to bring everything back to liberalism all the time, but but liberalism gave us this this myth of of, of neutrality and yeah. and the scientific revolution, too. I mean, can, the, the, can you, you know, can you define liberalism real quick? Yeah, so liberalism. I mean, as as I don't mean people like on the left politically. Uh, I mean the political philosophy that comes from John Locke and and mm-hmm. other you know of those those English uh, English thinkers um, that has fundamental commitments about um, fundamentally societies made up of individuals is one of the key commitments. Um, another would be a certain view of freedom, a certain view of justice. Um, so, for instance, the view of the view of justice, right under under, and it's so hard to even see it as a philosophy because it's just it's, it is it's like American. It's the way we think, right? yeah. It's the way the West thinks, but but for instance, many people think that that you're not doing something unjust to someone if they've agreed to it. That justice is a matter of contracts, and whatever we agree to is just fine. Yeah. Whereas, of course, of course, Catholic social teaching has all kinds of things to say about just wages and bad contracts and so forth. Um, and but it's but you know we get in this American way of life and we say like, well, if they agreed to it, must be fine, as though there's yeah. no natural justice there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so liberalism comes with commitments about justice of being a matter of contracts where, f- um, freedom is in, in our discourse, right. From liberal political philosophy is very much construed as the ability to sort of fulfill our desires, not so much the ability to like, you know, live in a good way. So in other yeah. words, a freedom that's disconnected, say from the truth or the way we ought to be, it's just about doing your own thing or what's Pennsylvania's motto next door. It's something like pursue your happiness. Which I take it, yeah. I take it by that they mean do whatever you want. Like it's, it's that notion of freedom that, that yeah they call that it the Keystone the... State for a reason. That's the Keystone <laughs> of the. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, so so liberal political theory, um, you know, emerges obviously. It, it it's what sort of we got after the, the collapse of of Christendom and after the collapse of um, you know Christian Christian monarchs. We then got these terrible horrible secular monarchs and then from there we got democracy and it's supposed to be amazing and beautiful and and it's not to say that democracy is not not a good thing but but with it we have this sort of liberal political philosophy that that freedom is whatever we kind of want to do and as long as we're not killing anybody else and justice is a matter of, yeah. of just contracts between people and we start to see the state as sort of this this neutral arbiter between the worldviews as though it stands outside of them when, of mm. course, people in government have a commitment, right? They have their own commitment. And, and we obviously have shared ideals that aren't even expressed, um, you know, shared commitments about whether human life is important and these other kinds of things. You can't really just be in this worldviewless vacuum, as, yeah. as you said. It's a, it's, it really is a myth. But so, for instance, when, when Roe v. Wade was decided, just to pick one thing, um, we get this sense that, well, it's like the neutral institutions of government have decided. And what do you mean the neutral institutions? This is a group of human beings. And they basically decided that somehow after 12 weeks, you know, that there was this magic 12 week thing with babies that before that you can kill them. And after that, you have to have like a reason. 
And, um, and well, but why? I mean, and that was presented to yeah. us as sort of neutral. And it's obviously, that's not a neutral view that comes with metaphysical commitments about whether it's, a, whether the baby is a person and all these kinds of deep metaphysical things. Yeah. And there's so many systems of bias that went into those nine people being there in the first place. You know, the decisions of presidents elected by biased voters and confirmed by biased senates and all this. And it, it okay, so I this is this is I don't I don't know if this is like a good topic to bring up for our listeners, but I was reading Elizabeth Anscombe earlier today. And she was talking about democracy and how in a democracy, you can have a situation, even in a perfect situation where it's one option A or option B, everybody votes and everybody has to live with that decision. Even in that situation, which is just not reality, you can have a situation where a majority of people are in the minority a majority of the time. <laughs> right. And I think I, I, when I read that, I was like, okay. That's why everyone in America is so mad all the time. Because even though we're like, we live by the majority, for some reason, we have tyrannized our ourselves. We've, 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 you know, we've become, we, we become this, this dissatisfied majority because we've minoritized ourselves. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it might be, it, it may well be that, that democracy is the, is the, the sort of best practical policy, the best way for us to help resolve some of our disputes and to, yeah. to move, to move forward together and for people to have a certain dignity and say in their own, their own, you know, ruling. But, but I, one, one thing I worry about in, in a similar vein is that we take these democratic votes and then we act like we've just settled like moral issues, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, so we take a vote or a court decides, you know, on gay marriage or abortion or some other hot button issue, a court decides it or a vote decides it. Uh, so, so vote is deciding it either directly or indirectly. And then we're just like, well, that that's it. You're not and allowed you to talk like about it, that you anymore. Go to you don't like it. Yeah. And it's like, well, well, no, democracy might be a practical way to solve our problems, but it obviously doesn't determine the truth of things. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Crazy. It just can't. And if, if if you can say that democracy is the best form of government, which I'm, we're not here to affirm or deny, then you're saying that there must in a best the the best form of government must make the best decision. And if there's a best decision, then that means there's a truth outside of the decision. You can't judge without a moral standard. That's nonsense. So yes, I agree with that. Um, <laughs> so so yeah, we we've we've covered a lot of topics ranging from just you know, I, and I think I think the the main theme is. Uh, we're we're being lied to about the bias of certain secular institutions, namely science and the state in general. Um, so how practically do we approach people that kind of live within these biases and how do we speak to that and kind of wake them up a little bit, you know, besides yeah. starting a podcast about it? Yeah, well, it's even hard for Christians in science because because a lot of times Christians in science have gotten into science because they believe a lot of these myths like they think they have a Mm. special form of deliberation and a special neutrality they've cultivated and a special ability the rest of us don't have to weigh evidence impartially and that's like the worst kind of person to hang out with you know i I just (laughs) i know i just i just don't think any of that is 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 true um you know i think of course the goal, though, isn't to be completely unbiased and have no opinions and or, or anything. The yeah. goal, of course, is just to, to recognize more fully um, our background, where we come from, why we think the way we do, and just try to be as self-aware as possible. You know, there is no view from nowhere. We all have a view from, from a particular vantage point. And, and you don't have a special one because cause you're trained in science. I mean, you just, you just don't. Yeah. Um, and that's a hard thing to, to sort of say. But, um, but I think if we could help people sort of say, well, wait a minute, but but don't scientists, for instance, just don't science, don't scientists disagree all the time. 
I mean, you know, uh, didn't didn't they tell us this was good for us, then that was good for us, now this yeah. is good for us again? I mean, and that's, I think, that's I think obviously on been important going on things. I think it's it's important to reiterate on important things they disagree. Right. It's not just like oh, so, like you said, a plant, the structure of a specific plant. Yeah, right. Yeah. Things that don't affect our lives. These are things that really affect our lives, affect public policy, affect whether people live or die. I mean, mm-hmm. these are these are important and and big worldview issues, right? There are scientists that disagree with each other about all kinds of you know important you know um, cosmological theories or evolutionary theories that have big you know worldview implications. So I just think our our goal should be to say, can't we come together and and recognize and we'll do our best. We will never be perfect, but we'll do our best to recognize our our background assumptions and our biases. But we have to do that with any discussion. I just don't think science is super different. Um, we recognize it so easily in politics, I think, right? Because we just see yeah. two camps, two camps going at it all the time. But then we pretend like there are never two camps in any on any scientific issue. In fact, we just science is like a, a it's what philosophers call a success term, right? Which means, you know, if it's science, it's correct. Right? Yeah. We, we don't even hardly have a category for like non-science or bad science or like bad science. We, we have we have we have science and non-science, but that sounds a whole lot to us like truth and falsehood. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't even have a category for bad science where you were properly engaging in scientific activity, but didn't find the truth. You know, you're mistaken about about what you think about science. Yeah. We don't really have a category for that. So we just need to bring science a little bit down to earth. And I don't mean to trash it, of course. Maybe it sounds sometimes like I do probably in, in, in my uh, my my lectures, <laughs> but that's not that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to develop. I'm just trying to take it down a notch so we have a healthier view of it, that it's not a superhuman institution. It's rather an institution made up of human beings. I, th- I think that I think that's incredibly fair. You said it's just it's just like any other thing. I think I think you're you're very right. I mean, you see it on you see it on on Twitter. You know, it's like people will say, according to science, yeah, science you, says you should eat dark chocolate every day, and it's like a, ve- <laughs> a very misrepresented article. And you know, you just want I just want to create a Twitter account that's called that's just at science. Just go. I didn't say that. <laughs> I never said that. Like it's That's a, good. Science That's is good. an amorphous blob. Of, I did try to do that. It was wildly unsuccessful. But um, uh, and it, it turns out at science was taken. Um, so it's, That's it's, good. It's, science is just this this like this big the platonic form of science yeah. that we can just refer to, and it's like that is all knowing. And also we have the we have the ability to fully know it right now right. as it stands, which like. Well. This is why this is why being grounded in the history of science though is really really important because the history of science is a is a, is in, is actually interesting. It's not just a, it's not just a history of the successes. It's a history of tons of failures and dead ends and and you know bad lobbying groups and yeah. and you know people pushing for eugenics in the science textbooks. You know, I mean, this isn't like this isn't some pristine history, um, but it's helpful to just see that there are failures there and that there are bad ideas, and that helps us not be beholden to every tweet coming out of neil degrasse tyson's you know phone you yeah. don't have to so so some healthy separation from you know and say well listen it's human beings they could be right they could be wrong and let's let's look at the evidence to try to get a better handle not just a not just a phd next to their name yeah. stars are in disguise and god is in disguise so neil degrasse tyson knows if god is in the sky <laughs> this is our logic and this is true. yes yeah so th- for, thank you so much we're, we're coming we're coming close to the end of our time um it's I'm I'm glad we have something kind of actionable to walk away with because you know it, it's easy to just talk about you know what's wrong with the world and then say well well I guess you know we figured out what's wrong with the world I guess that's it you know if we can if only people knew that we were correct everything would be fine um, we we talk a lot about learning the history of things and we talked about the history of science today I I'd love to talk more about you know how do we learn the history of things? What sources do we go to? This is something we've talked about on the podcast in the past. 
And so we'll definitely be continuing this this conversation on these on these like these special interview podcast. This podcast will be released on our not our normal Sunday, but on our Wednesday. On on Wednesday, uh, we're starting a new. We're gonna try and have bonus episodes that are like a little more a little more intellectual to like make our make our audience's brains bigger. That's what we're trying to do. Awesome. <laughs> and thank thanks so much. And again, newpolity newpolity.com. It's a it's like Dr. Gage said. It's a uh, it's a place to think about what what comes after liberalism, right? What comes after liberalism? Where where are we going to go from here now that the liberal the liberal worldview has kind of taken over? How can we how can we move on from that, and what can we move towards? Uh, do you have any Do you have any final thoughts for our audience, Doctor Gage? No, I just I just want to thank you for for having me on. I think it's so important that we that we just learn to think in a more Christian way in the various disciplines, whether it's in the sciences or whether it's in, in politics, we can't just absorb whatever, you know, secular ideas we've, we've, we've picked up from what, from media, from culture, from books we've read. We've got to really think, you know, to take, kind of take, take every thought captive for, for Christ in a way. Right. And, and that requires a lot of hard work and synthesis where we get into yeah. things that are uncomfortable to talk about. People start, you know, you talk about evolution, people start sweating, you know, yeah. and, and we just gotta, and, and people, you talk about politics and it's either you're a, you're a capitalist or a socialist and there's like, and you can't have a conversation. And so, and so I just urge everyone to, you know, let's, let's take a deep breath. Let's, let's be willing to, to hear other people's, hear other people out and, um, and have a serious conversation in order to like take those things captive. Yeah, I think that's great. Thanks so much, Dr. Gage, one more time. Um, you know, I don't have an outro yet because this is kind of a new podcast format. So thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.